Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the State of Florida Sports Podcast, presented by the USA Today Network. Here's your host, Tim Walters. The weather is no longer sweltering. It's that time of year when going outside becomes, well, enjoyable. And being in Florida, what better thing to do outdoors than go fishing? Today, one of the most expert outdoor journalists in the state will be here to tell us about several things taking place as the year wanes. His name is Ed Killer, and he'll be joining me in just a moment. Hello again, everybody. I'm Tim Walters, and thank you once again for joining me on the State of Florida Sports Podcast, powered by the USA Today Network. This podcast utilizes our Florida Sports Network of beat writers, columnists, and some special guests to bring you up to speed on the most important sports topics. Our Florida network consists of 17 news sites that encompass the state. We encourage you to subscribe to your hometown newspaper and, of course, this podcast to help support the incredible journalism done by our talented staffs. Ed Killer is the outdoors reporter for tcpalm.com and the Treasure Coast newspapers. Ed's been doing this for more than three decades, so when he speaks, you better listen. Let's bring him in now. Ed, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always great to hear your voice. I love our roughly quarterly check-ins, although I think I speak to you more than four times a year, but not many more. You, you need to be my regu- a little more regular here. What do you think? Yeah, I'd be good. I'd love to. All right. Well, before we get down to the real business, some of the things I talked about in the intro as far as fishing goes, you know, last couple of years at this time, we've talked about the uh, fishing rankings where this website called lawnlove.com ranks the best places to fish in the U.S., This year, they didn't release it like they have in previous years. So I was looking up to see some of their research that they've been doing. And Ed, you you wouldn't believe some of the things that they have been spending their time looking for. So since I can't ask you about their fishing rankings, why don't I ask you this? One of their latest researches has to do about the top cities in the United States for surviving a zombie apocalypse. Now, I've never watched The Walking Dead, and I know it has a new spinoff out, but if you had to survive the zombie apocalypse, where do you think you'd head? Oh, I don't know. How, how are zombies at swimming? I mean, maybe <laughs> I'd go to, a, go to a place like Miami Beach. It's, like, surrounded by water. All you got to do is, like, control the bridges, and you can keep the zombies out. Uh, that might be that, – that's what comes to mind first, like a, like a peninsula or a, an island that's uh, separated by bridges. Um, somewhere where you can kind of control the their access easily. Um, that might be the first thing I would pick. Hopefully, you would invite me on to Ed Island, where we could fight off the swimming zombies together, if they could. Yeah, right. Well, it says that uh, it took into consideration these five zombie survival categories: vulnerability, hideouts, supplies, protection, and mobility. So, I think I'd want to be on that island with a guy who knows as much about fishing as you. Yeah, there we go. All right. Well, it says that uh, if you're wondering in Florida, 
you're right. Miami was ranked as their number four city to survive a zombie apocalypse, while Orlando was number 10. Houston, New York, and San Antonio were one through three. Would would you consider any of those destinations? Yeah, I don't know. Like Orlando, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I agree with them on that one. It seems like a hard place to control the zombie apocalypse. Uh, Miami, you get a little help, though, because you got sharks all around the around the you know South Beach, at least that, that whole island out there, Miami Beach. And then you've got uh, also you got crocodiles, too. So you've got two things that can help you with the zombie apocalypse um, more so than some of those other places. So that's what I would just I just think I think maybe that would help a little bit. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they can swim. Maybe zombies are good swimmers. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm just picturing you're like Aquaman, where you can get the sharks and the crocodiles to do your bidding to fight off zombies. That's what I would do. I'd say, get try to coax them into it. Say, hey, man, you guys got to be on my side today, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, the other one that they had, this one, it, it made me laugh, and it also made me hungry. And it was their top cities where you could get the best hot dogs, the best cities for hot dog lovers. So what's the best hot dog you've ever had and where? Oh, it's this is going to sound crazy, but there's a place in downtown Jensen Beach right by the water. It's called Freggie's and it's a it's a it's been in business for 30 years. Used to be over at this this next to this tackle shop called the Snook Nook in downtown Jensen. And they've got this hot dog that has uh, it's got chili on it, which is really good. But they've also got this peanut butter that they put on it. It's like this peanut butter and chili hot dog. And it sounds, it doesn't sound that good. But man, when you eat it, I tell you, it is really good. It's a super good hot dog. So I, I would go down to Freggie's down there. They got great hot dogs right here, right here in downtown Jensen Beach. It's, a, it's like a food truck, basically. It's a really good place. Interesting. I've never thought about putting peanut butter on a hot dog but, but i'm telling the, you it it does it doesn't sound good at all <laughs> until you try it then then when you're like you're like man this is a great flavor i like this this flavor so i don't know it's it's it, it wins you over pretty easily sounds like something a dad would make for his six-year-old son when mom's away like on work or vacation or something but it says that the indicators of a top hot dog city include vendors consumer ratings topping contest awards and whether a city hosts a hot dog eating competition so are there any hot dog competitions down that way oh no i don't know of any of those you know one one thing did come to mind though there was this great place and i read recently it just changed hands and ownership but i think it's still open um it was called mel's hot dogs in tampa on bush boulevard right there in um right in tampa right down the street from bush gardens and it's been there for 40 40, 50 years. It was a Chicago style hot dog place. And one of the hot dogs you could get there, you know, it was the Chicago style with the, it's got like the pickles on the side of the hot dog. Uh, it's really, that's really good too. So, uh, but I don't, I don't know that Tampa or I know Jensen Beach doesn't, and maybe Tampa does, but I don't know of a hot dog eating contest in Florida, to be honest with you. Well, it looks like Tampa's number 71 on their list. So, uh, wow. Not not too much in contention. Miami is number nine as far as the state of Florida goes, but New York, Chicago, and L.A. are one, two, and three. I'll tell you, at my favorite place, and I'm looking forward here on the list, was Detroit, 
which looks like it's way down here as well at number 31. But there are two places in downtown Detroit. One's called Lafayette Coney Island, and the other's called American Coney Island. And they are next door to each other. And the story goes that they were started by, I can't remember if it was two brothers or two cousins who started the Lafayette one, and then they hated each other. And so one opened up a hot dog store next to the other. And so I've seen them, I saw them featured on the Food Channel, and when I was up in Detroit, my wife and I, we had to stop in and try them. The Lafayette one looks like a 1960s hot dog place. The register was original. It looked like one of those old typewriter, uh, you know, uh, registers with the buttons that you push down, and they only took cash. Their chili cheese hot dog was the best thing I've ever eaten. The guy was rude. He was kind of like the the hot dog Nazi, like the soup Nazi. He yelled at my sister-in-law for ordering tea, which I thought was bizarre. We then went next door to American Coney Island, which was this big, bright, inviting place, friendly staff. The hot dogs, not as good, though. So if you're ever in Detroit, go to Lafayette, put up with the mean old man if he's still alive, and try those hot dogs. Okay, that sounds good. All right. Now let's get to the real thing here. We're not just here to talk about zombies and hot dogs. We're here to talk about your specialty, and that is stuff going on in the outdoors. So, you know, Ed, you've been writing about a lot of stuff recently. As I mentioned in the intro, the weather's cooling down. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of great things to do in the outdoors in Florida when it's no longer feels like the surface of the sun. So we'll start here with October 16th. Flounder became off-limits to to harvest along Florida's Atlantic coast until December 1st as part of a recent spawning season closure instituted by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. So you wrote about this. Uh, Break down the details of this stopping, you know, basically Monday the 16th and going through December. Well, it's a... it. Florida Fish and Wildlife a couple years ago did some work on the flounder stocks. You know, when they talk about stocks and fish stocks, they're talking about population in the wild. And they use the term stocks all the time. But they're they're talking about, you know, the flounder and how available they are to anglers. And what they determined was that they their catch numbers, the the numbers being caught were were going up. And they had two problems. One was they had a pretty high daily bag limit. They were allowing harvesters to take 10 flounder a day, which, as I talked to a lot of people who would harvest flounders for the story back a couple of years ago, they all were pretty much in agreement that that number was too high. So the FWC did one thing really good. They brought the bag limit down to five per person, which still is high. But... Um, um, and then the other part of, part of the problem is, is right around this part, this time of October, when the weather starts to change a little bit, the waters, the water temperature starts to change a little bit. The currents are moving a little differently. What happens along um, both coasts in Florida is flounder spend some of their time of their lives offshore. And what they'll do is they'll come towards inlets or passes and they'll come in those passes and they'll settle in the shallower water. and and when they're doing that, they become more more accessible to harvesters. One of the most popular ways to harvest flounder is not so much with the hook and line like a fishing rod; it's with um, a trident, like a like a um, you know a spear. And what what harvesters will do is they'll use a shallow water draft boat, and they'll hook up an underwater light uh, in the front of the boat, underneath the bow, 
and they'll stand on the bow with these tridents. And what they'll do is when they'll go in the shallow water at nighttime, the lights will show the outline of the flounder laying in the sand. Flounder are very good. They're very flat fish and they lay on the bottom. And what they're very good about doing is they'll, they'll find a nice sandy spot where there's good current. And what they'll do is they'll kind of camouflage themselves a little bit and cover cover themselves up in the sand a little bit. So just their eyes are sticking out of the top of the sand. And what the current will do is sweep shrimp and crustaceans and other small fish by them. And they'll ambush. They're an ambush predator. They'll come up and they'll, they'll, they'll gobble up the fish or they'll gobble up whatever they're going to eat. Well, when, when, when harvesters are, are drifting over them in these boats with uh, underwater lights, they can see these flounder pretty easily. And they'll take the, the, the trident and they'll stab it down. You know, they'll have to be in like 12, 13, you know, 15, 20 inches of water. And they'll stab it down into the fish and then be able to put that in their box. So um, by closing it down for six weeks of the year, FWC feels like they're giving the flounder a little bit more protection by um, just not allowing the harvest to take place when the many of them are, are coming in the inlets like Sebastian Inlet, New Smyrna Beach Inlet, um, you know, Mayport, uh, even the, uh, many of the passes on the West Coast are doing the same thing around, you know, in Homosassa, in uh, Tampa Bay area, also Sarasota Bay, many of those passes, Clearwater and St. Pete, the, the flounder are coming into the passes from offshore, and that's that's what makes them easy to harvest. All righty. And now, once again, I'm picturing you holding a trident on Ed Island, stabbing gag grouper. H- how great would that be? A trident, well, a trident comes in handy during the zombie apocalypse, too, just so you know. <laughs> well, I mentioned bag, a gag grouper, and that's because it was also recently announced that that season... Uh, for recreational and commercial is coming to a close next week. That's on October 23rd because the annual catch limit has been met. So what what is that limit? How do they monitor all of that? And uh, when does it reopen for people that want to go out and get their gag grouper? Um, okay, so for, let's do the second part of the question first. So the reopening for the season, first of all, both commercial and recreational sectors have been closed to harvest. The reopening for both sectors is not until May 1st of 2024. Um, normally, the season for gag grouper closes for both recreational and commercial fishing on January 1st of every year, and it stays closed until, you know, through April 30th of every of every year, at least for the Atlantic coast. Um, forgive me for not knowing this off the top of my head, but I'm I'm not sure what the Gulf Coast seasons are, but they're they're a little different. They're split up differently. Um, but they they have seasons on the Gulf Coast as well, and they also have different catch limits for the Atlantic waters and the Gulf Coast waters. So let's just talk about the Atlantic Coast for now, because I know that I know this information very well. Um, because they're closing down the Atlantic waters on October twenty third, um, the the they're saying it's because the annual catch limits were met. What the what the federal fisheries do for federal waters. And that's from on the Atlantic coast of Florida. That's from the about three miles off the coast on out to 200 miles. When the federal fisheries clo- uh, managers close down those waters to some type of fishery, um, what they'll do is they have basically annual catch limits calculated for 
many of the fisheries in the snapper grouper fishery, king mackerel, amberjack, cobia, dolphin, all of these fisheries, they've got these these numbers out there. For gag grouper, they've split it up so that the recreational sector gets like 55% of the annual catch limit. The commercial sector gets about 45% of it. And I'll tell you where the problem comes in. The recreational sector is allowed to harvest about 90,000 pounds of grouper um, every year. The commercial sector is is allowed to harvest 85,000 pounds of grouper. But the problem is, is the way they harvest them. Recreational fishing, as you know, most of us, we're going out on a boat. We're going out to where the grouper ledge is. That's probably 180 to 270 feet of water. That's probably out of like out of like Fort Pierce, for instance. That's about 13, 14 miles out of the inlet. Um, off of Canap- Port Canaveral, that might be 25 miles off the inlet to where that that water is that deep, and that's where the grouper live. You know, out of New Smyrna Beach, it's even farther. It might be 40 miles out of New Smyrna Beach. And, you know, and, and as and so on and so forth, Matanzas Inlet, uh, Mayport, when you go out of those inlets, you're going quite a ways to get to that 180 to 250, 270 feet of water where most of these gag grouper live. Um, so the first part of the problem is the gag grouper, um, they have a, they're very slow to mature sexually. And I know that um, I know you were really hoping we would get around to talking about gag grouper sexual habits on this podcast, Tim. So, uh, we're here, we're at that point that you never thought you'd hear about. That's for sure. So, yes, but the uh, guy grouper, it takes them about seven years before they get to sexual maturity. And in the life of a saltwater fish, that's like an eternity. So it's very easy to overfish these fish. You can, you can take, you know, it takes a couple of years for a guy grouper to get to the the legal limit, the legal size that you're allowed to harvest them, which I think is still 24 inches in length in the total length but um you've got a couple year window there where you can harvest them still before they get to sexual maturity so that's reducing the number of gag grouper that are in the in the ocean in the first place um the second part of it is when you go out there and you're recreational fishing you're fishing with a hook and line you've got to control the drift of the boat um the current can be too too fast for you to be able to control the drift effectively um, it might be, uh, too, if it's too slow, the fish aren't going to bite. Uh, if, if it's just right, it takes a little bit of advanced fishing and boating technology and knowledge to be able to put yourself in a good spot to catch grouper with hook and line. The guys that specialize in it, they're really, really good at it. There's, there's some charter boat captains that are excellent at it. There, I know some other recreational guys that are also excellent at it, but it's not something that a lot of people can easily achieve. Um, but if you're out there, you might catch one gag grouper, two gag grouper, a trip, maybe three gag grouper trip in Atlantic waters. And these gag grouper range throughout the Atlantic, all the way from Key West, all the way up to like, uh, Virginia, let's just say on these reefs in 180, 270 feet of water. When a commercial diver goes after them though, it's different, it's a different story altogether. The commercial diver is using mixed gases. He's an expert at, at doing this. He's able to dive down there and spend, you know, a half hour to 45 minutes down there doing his, doing his job. And he's using a spear gun and he's using these, these floats 
And what he can do is he can he could spear a grouper and attach it to this float that sends it up to the surface where his uh, other co-workers can pick it up and put it in the boat. And they can they can literally take a reef, say the reef might be, you know, say a reef is 100 yards long. They can literally clean off every single gag grouper that's legal to harvest in that one reef section in, in, a, in, a, in a span of an hour. So that's where the problem comes in. It's, it's the type of harvesting they allow and the amount of harvesting they allow. A commercial fisherman can take like about 1,000 pounds of grouper per trip. Now, there's way fewer commercial fishermen out there fishing for gag grouper, but when they're able to use these, these diving methods, they can way more effectively take more gag grouper in one trip than recreational anglers will. So it's a problem in, in, in several senses, and one of them might be the way that, that federal fisheries is managing the fishery in the first place. So they may have to change how they do that. But um, but right now, that's one of the reasons why they've, they've had to close uh, the fishery off early, you know, about two months earlier than they normally do. So it's 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 too bad. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm in my mid 40s. I don't know if I've reached sexual maturity yet, Ed, but I'm still waiting for that to happen. And uh, yeah, <laughs> well, uh, you know, there there are also a couple of other seasons that are also coming to a close here. It seems like this is the time of year where a lot of these things happen. That includes hogfish and spotted sea trout, and those close down November first. So, when are those expected to start up again? So, um, for hogfish, it'll be just like grouper and snapper. So they won't start that up again until May until May first of next year, and um, and that's a reasonable closure. Uh, hogfish are, are a fish that they're, they're beautiful. They're they're excellent eating fish. They're fantastic, delicious flavor, um, but they aren't very. They don't eat. Um, they don't take a bait like a hook and line, like a bait on a hook. They don't take a bait very often. Every now and again, you'll see somebody will catch one on hook and line. But really, they're thought of something as something that is harvested by spear fishermen. They live in shallower water, so they're more accessible to many more divers and some snorkelers even. They're using spear guns to harvest their catch, and that's how they harvest the hogfish. Um, the hogfish, are uh, their, their numbers for their, their annual catch limit, for instance, I'm not sure what it is, but it's much lower than gag grouper. Um, and they've come up with this system where basically you get about a six-month fishing season, which is coincides with diving season. And then you get about a six-month closure that really coincides with when our waters are rougher and more people aren't, aren't even diving anyway. So it's a, it's a good closure. It, it, it's, it's good. It helps the fish a little bit. And it keeps the divers away from them. And, and that way they, they've got a little they got six months to kind of rebound their numbers a little bit. So, so far, that seems to be working pretty good. With sea trout, it's a much shorter closure. So it's only two months. They close November 1st. It opens back up on January 1st. And it's, again, it's a way to kind of give the trout a little bit of breathing room. One of the things I have a problem with with spotted sea trout is the east central Florida section of, of Florida. First of all, you can catch spotted sea trout throughout all the waters of Florida, all the way from the Keys, all the way through the Panhandle and uh, Texas, all the way to Texas, all the way to Virginia. You can catch these fish in coastal waters and shallow water. Um, they're mostly caught by uh, hook and line. And there's there's some recreational fishing. But one of the problems they have with, with trout, which I don't understand, is Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, which manages the sea trout, 
they allow for commercial harvest of these trout. And a commercial fisherman can take, I think it's up to 50 head of trout per day. And if he's fishing with another person who also has a saltwater products license, the two of them can can harvest 100 trout per day in any of the waters of coastal waters of Florida. And that just, it just, it's led to overfishing. And you can look at the commercial trip ticket numbers that the FWC keeps keeps control of. And in a place like St. Lucie County, which used to be the number one county in Florida for producing commercial harvest of sea trout, they were catching literally uh, 125,000 pounds of trout a year back in the 90s. And this year they're down to catching five, six, seven pounds. I'm, I'm not misstating this. It's It's literally a 99.9% decrease in the commercial harvest of spotted sea trout in the last 25 years in St. Lucie County, Florida, just because of a habitat loss. Uh, there's not much seagrass out there and the seagrass that's dying off. That is home throughout the entire sea trout's life cycle from the time it's a, a fertilized egg all the way up to where it's an adult. Um, it spends its entire life in seagrass in the Indian River Lagoon and other estuaries in Florida. And we've killed off seagrass. We've got water quality problems. Well, the water isn't very good either. And um, because we've killed off that seagrass, there's no more forage fish for these sea trout to feed on. So you've got this combination of a lack of food, lack of habitat, lack of water quality, and then overfishing all coming together at the same time to lead to this almost virtual collapse of this species of fish that East Central Florida used to be known as, as the world capital of spotted sea trout. So it's that's been a real sad thing. You can still catch them out there. They're out there. Um, but boy, it's, 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 it's a lot of guys that were, a lot of fishing guides that were experts at catching trout are not catching them anymore. You got some guys in Brevard County, they're pretty good at it. Guys in Indian River County, pretty good at it. And there's other parts of the state of Florida, like the Panhandle section, uh, Northeast Florida. Um, there's there's some great trout fishing in some of those estuaries, uh, like the Halifax River, you know, Tomoka Basin, that area up there, that whole area um, out by Pensacola, all those bays, Santa Rosa Bay, and those bays out there, St. Joseph Bay. The trout fishing is still very good in a lot of those places, Steenhatchee and you know, down, down to Crystal River and and even Cedar Key. But as far as um, the East coast of Florida, it's very, very slim pickings now. And again, those close on November 1st. And if you haven't seen what a hogfish looks like, I, I recommend people go and Google it. It's a very unique looking fish. And with hog in its title, wonder if that'd make for good hot dogs made out of seafood. (laughs) <laughs> there you go yeah maybe, yeah maybe not i don't know yeah maybe still not look, <laughs> still looking at hot dogs in the apocalypse i can't get them out of my mind um in other fishing news around florida ed there are also some snook harvest changes coming to southwest florida and i know you wrote about that recently so why don't you tell us what some of those changes are for the people in the naples fort myers and uh that area of the the state uh first i'll tell you what the limits are and then i'll tell you what was what had been proposed and got stopped but um, so recently, uh, two weeks ago, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission met in Jensen Beach to talk about the new rules for snook statewide. Rule number one that they did agree on was they, they've changed the management of snook in Florida from two uh, s- zones 
Atlantic coast and Gulf coast to nine different zones. Um, and they're, they're going to be broken up. You're going to have to go to the myfwc.com to look these up. Some of those zones are small, like Sarasota Bay, for instance, is its own zone. Tampa Bay area is its own zone. Um, but they've got another one that goes like Southwest Florida, which includes um, the Keys and Collier County and part of, uh, I think it's part of Lee County, then Collier County, and then Monroe County. Um, you've also got zones uh, along the east coast of Florida and Panhandle and some places where you really don't even catch snook, but they've they've already thinking ahead with, with the way snook have been migrating based on climate change. Snook have been moving north up the Florida Peninsula. Typically, you couldn't catch snook really south of like Mesquite Lagoon. Um, that was that was the only place you. I'm sorry, that I, I said that wrong. You could catch them only south of Mosquito Lagoon and the Homosassa River for many many decades in Florida. But recently, they've been catching them up as far as the Suwannee River on the west coast and as far as Jacksonville on the east coast. So snook are starting to move into these territories that they've never been before. Um, and anyway, the the FWC is being proactive by creating these nine management zones which gives them the flexibility to manage each zone differently if they need to which which will be which it'll help the fish and it'll help everything um the second thing is they are going to add september to the closed months for harvest for the southwest florida uh zone so from from and sarasota i think too so from uh check check the myfwc.com to verify this but from the um, area about where, actually not Sarasota County, about where Sir, the southern border of Sarasota County is, where it meets Charlotte County. From there down to the Keys, they're adding September to the closed month of the harvest season. So for that zone, you won't be able to keep a snook from May 1st until, uh, until October 1st. So October 1st is when the season will reopen for harvest. And then it's only going to be October and November for that area over there. And then it's closed for much of the other part of the year. The other thing, that that's what they've decided on doing. What they almost decided to do was to outlaw harvest and prohibit harvest in the Tampa Bay region for the for next year. Now, they did not agree to that, so they still left it open. But they've determined that because of the red tide a couple of years ago that killed all those fish, that snook populations in Tampa Bay were very, very low. And they were concerned that fishing pressure would increase the how fast snook populations decreased in that area. They, In the end, they didn't close it. But they've got that zone as its own management zone. And they may choose in the future. They're gonna, they've, they've made a pledge here to try to review snook limits every summer and what they may do is in the future going forward they may change these a little bit the other thing they decided to do is they may decide to they have they're having fwc staff look at the possibility of doing this they may divide the indian river lagoon 156 mile lagoon into two zones right now it's all included in one but they may divide it into two so they may put a dividing line somewhere near Vero Beach or Sebastian or maybe just north of Sebastian to divide the Indian River Lagoon into two separate sections since 
biologically and habitat wise, they are very different. The northern part of the lagoon and the southern part of the lagoon are kind of, they're very different. They have a different set of impacts that impact each region. So the FWC may decide in the future to separate that and create 10 zones instead of nine. So that'll be interesting to see if they do that. The one thing they really wanted to also do was to drop the bag limit to make it a two snook per vessel bag limit statewide. Now, they did not do that in the end. There was about 10 uh, passionate snook fishermen who loved taking home one snook for dinner every night, and they argued with the commission against the value of doing that. They also had about three fishing guides who argued in favor of it. So the commission went ahead and they, they sided with the, the everyday angler and they decided not to make that change right now. One thing I thought was wrong about it, I wrote a column about it saying that, you know, we have to spend $17 to fish from a boat for a saltwater, a state saltwater fishing license, and we got to spend 10 bucks for a snook stamp. So that means that if me and my three sons went fishing on the boat, that's four guys spending $27 each to go out there and harvest snook and we can only bring home two instead of four so you know I mean, it doesn't sound like much and i'm sure we could live without it but the main thing is, is what the it's the principle of the point you're basically paying a tax to fish from a boat anyway that you don't have to pay if you fish from shore if you fish from shore is the saltwater fishing license is no cost if you fish from a private vessel the saltwater fishing license costs you 17 dollars. so you've already got an in, a difference in price there and either way, you've got to spend 10 bucks for the snook stamp, so you've got to add that on. And all that money goes to help the snook, snook uh, program for the Florida Fish and Wildlife. And what Florida Fish and Wildlife does is come around and take away snook from you. So I don't really understand the logic of that. So anyway, um, that, that was pretty much what, what it boiled down to. But So if you live in that southwest Florida area from Charlotte County down to, down to Key West, um, you've got one extra month added on to your closed season. All righty. Well, it sounds like there's a, you know, a lot for people to know, especially in that region. So uh, again, read all of Ed's work at tcpalm.com. And so Ed, a lot of things closing down, but there's also some things that are starting to open up, I guess you would say in Florida. So, you know, there's, um, the fall migrations are starting to happen. So what type of fish should people, you know, we talked about all the things you can't fish for coming up soon. What should people be fishing for over the next couple of months? You know, this time of year is a, it's a great time of year to fish because it's a transition period. And one of the wonderful things about Florida is the fact that we do have these fall migrations that, that happen every year. We have spring migrations too, but they're, they're different and a little more subtle, but the fall migration is more condensed and um, you see a lot more action. So the first thing we have is we have the fall mullet run, which you know is a term that we've all probably familiar with these days. But uh, it's you know it's something that's been going on for thousands of years, and it's when the year-old silver mullet that are about about four to six inches long, they gather up in the bays and the lagoons and coves, and estuaries, and they form together these big schools and they migrate out of the inlets and passes and then they move south and they're headed for places like you know the yucatan peninsula and um you know cozumel and that whole you know mexico area and you know through the keys that you can find them too and that starts around 
sometime early September, usually around the full moon uh, in early September. Now we had the full moon at late August this year, and it didn't really kick it off like a like a you know like a fireworks show. It was kind of a slow gathering thing, and took another two weeks or so. But finally, when they did start moving, there was action at Sebastian Inlet for at least a month. It's it's just starting to wind down now. But these fish have all been moving along the beaches and through the Indian River Lagoon. And they've been doing it on the Gulf Coast, too, a little bit. But on the Atlantic Coast, they're pretty concentrated. Where you get these schools of, like, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 mullet all in one group. And every predator that eats a mullet is 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 on it. Uh, we've got everything from pelicans and, um, you know, ospreys and terns and all the water birds. The eat fish, uh, dolphins, uh, the eat fish. You've also got all of the fish that eat fish, sharks, tarpon, snook, jacks, redfish, black drum, flounder, you name it is, is after these mullet. Um, so it makes for a very exciting, uh, two months of fishing along Florida's East coast. Now, many of those mullet are down South of Boca Raton. They're moving down towards Miami and the keys, the upper keys are through there. So all that action is kind of taking place down there. But behind them comes several more migrations that people don't really don't really talk about them or write about them as much, but you start seeing their effect. Bluefish, to me, is one of the first ones that comes after the mullet. Those schools of bluefish are coming down. They're coming down from New York, New Jersey, through Virginia and the Carolinas. And next thing you know, they're right behind the mullet, and we'll get them along our beaches to where they're in casting range from for surf fishermen you can catch really good bluefish um you can catch them from you know two to three pounds all the way up to as as large as as 20 pounds believe it or not the state record bluefish was caught here in the early 70s off of jensen beach and it was 22 pounds which is a that's a big chopper um and it was it was during these fall migrations is when you see them we also get right behind them are the spanish mackerel and Spanish mackerel, you know, they only get to about maybe 18, 20 inches long total, but they're delicious. They're fantastic eating fish. Bluefish, they're a little gamier. People like to put like mayonnaise on them and put them on the grill. Um, I'm not really big on the bluefish. I like to, I'll throw my bluefish back, but Spanish mackerel, I'll keep a couple for the dinner table and I'll boil them on the grill. You know, a little lemon, a little butter, uh, some garlic. It's really, really good. Some onion. Um, only eat the Spanish mackerel fresh. You'll be disappointed if you try to keep it in the fridge for a day or two or keep it in the freezer and then re- and then thaw it out. It's not going to be a very good eating fish if you do that. So just eat it fresh. I know your limit is like 15 per person per day, but just take home as many as you're going to eat because you're not going to want any more than that. Um, but anyway, Spanish mackerel are right behind them. They're also moving down the beaches and into the inlets and in the lagoons. And a lot of those surf fishermen are in perfect position to target these bluefish, these Spanish mackerel, and then the thing that everybody's fishing for are pompano, and those pompano are coming right down there with them. Um, the pompano are fantastic. They're fantastic eating fish. Uh, like I said, pompano and Spanish mackerel, they're my, they're both my top eating fish for eating. Um, pompano, you they have to be 11 inches to the fork to keep them, and uh, but there's plenty of them, and they'll come down in waves and. A lot of times fishing during the incoming tide at the beach is the best time to target all this action. As that as that water level kind of increases over the sandbar, those fish will move over from the outside of the sandbar to the inside of the sandbar, and that's where you can cast to with your baits 
with your surf rods, and that's the best place to catch them. Pompano will be there, Spanish mackerel, and bluefish. But you'll catch a lot of pompano and a lot of whiting doing that using that method. And they're, they're both fantastic fish. And during that incoming tide, you can catch you catch your limit of six pretty quick if they're if they're moving through in schools. Offshore, you've got some other migrations too. You've got uh, dolphin, the mahi mahi, you know that we see in menus. Those green and yellow dolphin are moving south, and the currents are in 120 to 180 feet of water. We we'll also get uh, blackfin tuna that come down with them. Some of those will be as big as 15 pounds, 20 pounds. They're not. They they're a cousin of the giant tunas that we we fish for, but um, the blackfin don't get very much bigger than 25 pounds. So, and if you get a nice 15, 20 pound fish, that's a good one to keep. Um, Wahoo can be around that time, and then later on in the year, probably around December, around Christmas time, is when we start seeing sailfish moving south too. So we've got these big migrations that happen, which is kind of fun because it it just it makes it's one of the great things about fishing in Florida is you have this diversity of species that you can target. You, you you're not going out there like in Minnesota where you can you've got like three fish you can catch. You know down here you've got you know 25 different species of fish you can encounter in, in one fishing trip. So um so, so it's a great great time and a great place to be fishing this time of year and what's great is that during these migrations the fish i like to think of it as the fish are actually coming to us like you don't have to go after the fish they're coming right by you you just got to be there with your rod when they're coming by that's all all righty well now i'm really hungry after you've talked about that butter different things you can put on these delicious sounding fish so and i think you've done a good job of breaking down what's coming to a close what's showing up here and, you know, the nice thing is, again, normally at this time of year when we're talking about the fishing rankings, we're also talking about hurricanes. Luckily, Florida so far has been spared, but we'll continue to watch the tropics because obviously we now know that hurricanes can come into November. So, Ed, is there anything else you want to get in front of the audience today or do you want to break down Lawn Love's best cities for thrifting or best cities for pickleball or have we done enough damage for the day? I think we've done enough damage. Um yeah, and pickleball, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if Florida's not the number one state for pickleball, then uh, th- there's a large issue there. But I-, I won't even look into that research. As always, you can find all of Ed's work at tcpalm.com and in the pages of the Treasure Coast newspapers in Vero Beach, Port St. Lucie, Fort Pierce, and Stewart. And Ed, if people want to find you on social media, if they just want to find your aggregated links, because we know we- you put all your stuff there, where can they find you? On X. You can find me uh, at TC Palm E Killer. That's uh, and yes, that's the same for Instagram as well. So you can find me there, and then on Facebook it's just Ed Killer. But you can find me at uh, Instagram and X at, at TC Palm E Killer. And of course, when the zombie apocalypse happens, you can find him on Ed Island down there near Miami Beach. Ed, it's always a pleasure having you on, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, with with my trident, Tim. By the way, on Ed Island, I'll have my trident ready to go. All righty. I'll, st- I'll be standing right behind you for protection then. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, man. And that will do it for this episode of the State of Florida Sports Podcast. I'm Tim Walters. And to quote longtime Green Bay Press Gazette columnist, the late Doug Larson, if people concentrated on the really important things in life, there'd be a shortage of fishing poles. Personally, I wish I had more time to go fishing too. However, I'm happy doing this podcast, so help me out by joining me again next time.
just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.